Thank you, Gary, for uh, meeting with me. I know it's been a while since we've uh, actually physically spoken. I, I know that we have some history together, but um, I'm, I'm really grateful that uh, you, you've been able to come on today. So thank you. You're welcome. Uh, so Gary, um, for those of uh, my viewers who who won't probably know who you are, some of them do, could you just uh, give us a brief background on yourself, who you are and uh, what you do? Well, I've been around a long time. This could take some time. Um, <laughs> I'm working, I'm a, basically an epidemiologist, so I work in health and my role is to uh, discover the or find the causes of uh, diseases, mainly chronic diseases. I, there's two types of epidemiologists. One work in one works in chronic diseases and the other works in infectious diseases. Uh, I work more in chronic diseases because I'm not medical. Uh, things such as heart disease and diabetes, uh, arthritis, a whole range of different problems that come up from time to time due to people's lifestyles. Uh, and I've done that since 1970. So what's that, about 50 years now? Wow. Um, the, I've been involved in a number of organisations and setting up organisations in doing that, the latest one being the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine, which I helped set up in 2006. And that's uh, a large group now, which um, is on the sort of medical register as uh, dealing with lifestyle-related uh, health problems, uh, diseases, such as all the chronic diseases that I was just talking about because these aren't caused by microbes or germs. These are caused by people's lifestyles and the environment. And so uh, there was nothing before that, before the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine in Australia, specifically to deal with these particular problems. But I guess in getting to that stage, I've been through the mill. Um, I started off in health, in uh, health education, what was then called health education, which was... Um, working out how to deliver messages to influence people, to motivate people to change their behaviours. Uh, then that was changed to um, uh, health promotion. Uh, I then got involved in looking at things like quitting smoking and all the issues back in the 70s that we that were just new to, uh, to um, health because the diseases changed from those days back in the... Around about 1980, they changed from being predominantly infectious diseases to predominantly lifestyle-based chronic diseases. And so you needed a totally different type of analysis and type of intervention to deal with that. It's not just as simple as with the medical doctor giving somebody a pill to go away to take away an infectious uh, disease. So this is associated with lifestyle, with behaviour, and of course lifestyles are also influenced by the environment. So the environment um, can affect not only the chronic diseases, but the infectious disease. The big pandemic that we've got going at the moment, COVID, of course, is caused by largely by pulling down too many trees and allowing bats and other animals, zoonotic species, to carry uh, viruses uh, close to where people live. And if we continue to do that, we're going to continue to have pandemics. And my role will then be not only to deal with chronic disease, but to deal with infectious diseases as well the spread of uh, infectious diseases we, we could be here for a few more hours so to speak <laughs> and uh you know uh, i'm no expert and um so but i will be interested in to hear more about that um but getting back to the variables that are present when you talk about um, people's choices you talk about you know backgrounds i, I assume that uh, cultural uh, cultural 
or culture plays a big significance in some of the problems that you've probably seen in the, in the past. Am I correct? Yeah, most certainly. Um, and I've done, I've worked a lot in the Pacific Islands, um, in your home island, of course, in the Tonga, Samoa, uh, Fiji, uh, up in Nauru, in the Torres Straits, uh, um, other... Up in New Guinea? Sorry? Did, yeah, did you, Guinea, were you up in New Guinea? Yeah, uh, that's probably enough to talk about because the culture, of course, does influence everything there, but, uh, and, and also... I left out one of the most significant ones is Aboriginal society in, in Australia, Aboriginal culture. And, of course, those cultures are influenced by the, uh, the um, colonisation that has occurred with uh, Europeans coming into those cultures and changing the way that they, they operate. In your Pacific Islands, for example, there was a, a, the, in the early days of colonisation back in the 1800s in particular, um, there was a lot of missionaries went into the islands and um, competed with each other to get uh, people to convert to their religion. And in doing so, they provided meals, huge meals on a Sunday. I've been in Tonga, for example, where we've counted the number of calories that these meals that are provided by current religions there to try and attract the islanders to go to their services on, on Sunday and to belong to their, their churches. Uh, has been about three to four times as much as the average Australian male eats in a week. That's just on a Sunday. And that's because they kill pigs and they do all sorts of things to uh, attract the group. Now, obviously, that's going to lead to obesity and overweight, and that's going to lead on to the diseases associated with that. And just about all chronic diseases have a link with uh, obesity. And, in fact, even uh, infectious diseases like covid are more dangerous if you're obese and uh, you will take much longer to survive from COVID, uh, much longer to get better if, you've, if you are overweight or obese. Like uh, I'm, I'm, as I ha- am getting a little bit older, I uh, am trying to get a little bit wiser and um, have realized that, you know, there's a lot of factors that are involved in terms of uh, staying healthy, one, and uh, changing the mindset so that it's just just changing the mindset of what it is that I'm doing to my body. Uh, I mean, it's 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 difficult. But, but the other, thing, it's, it's quite... the other thing you've got to add to that, Sean, is that uh, if you're living back in the islands, they are the islanders are bombarded by the offcuts of some of the meat that the New Zealanders don't eat in lamb. In fact, yeah. you know, belly fat from a lamb won't sell in New Zealand, so they send it to Tonga and Samoa cheaply, right. and that's then uh, the more fattening and more dangerous food because that increases or adds to the genetic predisposition of islanders to have high cholesterol and to have potential heart disease. And so it's the environment. That's, it's not the, the individuals. It's the environment that, that white uh, people have created that have made it difficult for, for Tongans, uh, for islanders. And, uh, and I've done a lot of work in, in all of the islands, islands trying to get them to change their diet and, and eat what they used to eat before colonisation mm. because that was healthy food. And the natural foods of the islands was extremely healthy. And that was, if that was still eaten now, there wouldn't be as much problem as there is. But, of course, as a result of getting big through the diets that come from countries like Australia and New Zealand, 
um, islanders have developed this passion for big people as well. And that's why yeah. you're very good rugby players. They have provide very, very good rugby <laughs> players because they're big guys. And uh, the, the men like big women too because they've been mm. encouraged to, uh, to do that, uh, to support yeah. the, the diets that they've been given. And it's interesting mm. working with the young girls up there in Tonga uh, while they were going through high school, they were all quite lean and fit because they were doing lots of exercise and they were eating lots of natural foods. But then once they got married, they got they started to put on weight and didn't seem to mind putting on that weight because the men didn't mind them being big anyway. In fact, preferred mm. them for the reasons mm. I've just talked about. Yeah, uh, I mean, cultural... Um... <sighs> tendencies a cultural uh, upbringings it, it's a it's a hard uh um what do you say programming to 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 get out of and uh yeah. I, i'm sure you know so some some white guy coming to the island said telling them to stop uh, eating and it, it would have been tough for you at the time it was very tough particularly originally one of the good things that's happened recently uh and good not necessarily directly good but uh, because Islanders are big and are strong uh, and are very good footballers, they've made their way to Australia and New Zealand and uh, made their way into the top rugby uh, union and rugby league sides. And in Australia now, it's over 50%. In fact, it's close to 60% is made up of Islanders who are then able to uh, support their families back home much better because they get very well played, uh, paid playing professional sport in Australia and some even in the United States. And that's potentially uh, going to change the culture of those islands to, to accept uh, more the healthy lifestyle. I, I spent a lot of time working with uh, a couple of the international Australian rugby players in Tonga. We got them to do ads when I was working for the World Health Organisation over there, saying it's good to be big, but it's not good to be fat. And right. you know, being big means big muscular, which, which Islanders are. But it's yeah. what they do on top of that to add the fat to that that makes them unhealthy. And they're, they're really not good footballers when they get to that level. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we, we, know, we, we know about a few of those. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I know that we've, we've spoken um, uh, a lot about, um, you know, my cultural background being Māori and uh, some of my my native uh, Tongans and Samoans. Uh, but who are you primarily dealing with at the moment? Well, it, it varies, but uh, it varies on the problem. And the problem changes all the time in health. So back in the 80s, you know, I was dealing more with fitness, physical fitness in, in Australians, with Australians. Uh, and then in the early 2000s, I was asked by the World Health Organization to go over to the islands and work over there. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not needed. In, I, I work with uh, uh, professional people in New Zealand with Maoris there, but uh, I'm not needed there because you've got a pretty pretty good setup yourself. And uh, in 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 essence, a lot of the Maori culture and a lot of the the support that Maoris get over there is much better than what Aborigines get here. So yeah. you know, I've I've turned also to working with Aboriginal groups here. Uh, and that's a that's a separate issue because you you are even though a lot of people say you know Maoris and and, uh, and Aboriginals are similar source because they're First Nations people although Maoris are not First Nations people as you probably know <laughs> in New Zealand <laughs> but but they should be treated in a similar way and that's not true that's not right you've got the Treaty of Waitangi over there which has been tremendous for 
for um, New Zealand, uh, New Zealand Maoris in particular. Australia, Australian Aborigines don't have that, and they've got a culture that they've got a culture that goes back sixty thousand years, whereas the Maori culture in New Zealand just goes back eight hundred years, and that influences things dramatically. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, uh, talking about the Aboriginal culture and and some of the things that um, when you talk about going back to some of the foods that uh, you know our people should be eating and should be eating still, um, you know, reading such books as uh, you know Dark Emu and and whatnot. Talking about some of the the um, foods that were available and and that the Aboriginal people were eating back then. Um, like you're saying, it's it's quite similar in, in terms of the colonization and, and what's been lost uh, with the Aboriginal uh, culture. And I mean, there's a resurgence there at the moment, I know. Um, but like you're saying, they don't have uh, as, what do you say, a, a greater um, support, I suppose, in terms of not having a treaty. I mean, with the treaty, it took a whilst and still is. Um, but Aboriginal uh, people... Um, you know, there's a bit of, you know, legwork still to go. Uh, yeah, of- but if you look at, for example, the, the traditional Aboriginal diet, it was 80% vegetable and 20% uh, or 80% plant and 20% animal, which is about the perfect diet. And most traditional cultures throughout the world, the Swedes, for example, the Norwegians, the Scandinavians, even down to the Mediterraneans, if you take their original diet, it is probably the healthiest diet you can get. It's different in different parts of the world, but it's probably the healthiest diet you can get because it comes from natural whole foods, uh, even including the animals. And there's no, the, you know, in Australia, of course, with, with kangaroo and with uh, uh, even lizards and snakes and things, uh, they are extremely, they're, they're high in fat, but they're extremely good fat. So with kangaroo, yeah. it's... Uh, it's what little fat kangaroo has. When I say they're high in fat, kangaroo is not high in fat, but what little fat it has is polyunsaturated fat, which is really good for the heart. And we, even though it's hard to know what the Aborigines were like before English colonisation, there's a pretty fair assumption that they were very healthy. They were lean and healthy because of their diet. Well, well, I mean, you know, Bruce Pascoe in his book was talking about that there was there's evidence for uh, pens and so, you know, uh, kangaroos and emus were, would have definitely been pinned. So, and that, and like you're saying, they're very, very healthy meat to to eat. And yeah, well, they, uh, I imagine, as Pesco points out, they've they've farmed for thousands of years. It yep. just wasn't recognised when the English came in because the English didn't want these people to be seen as a culture, as having yep. a culture. The the big That's thing, right. though, and one of the areas that I'm particularly working in at the moment is not just the physical factors. You can you can isolate the yeah. causes of disease, lifestyle causes of disease. And we yeah. have an acronym that we use. We call it nasty odours. And I, I won't go through every one, but it includes things like nutrition, activity, uh, stress, uh, technology, um, yeah. in, inadequate sleep, environment, and so on and so on. But the one thing that we didn't have to go with Indigenous cultures, and this is not just Aboriginals, but this is uh, Indigenous cultures around the world, is something that's more psychological. And that's the fact that they've suffered uh, prejudice, they've suffered colonization, they've also suffered adverse, what's called adverse childhood experiences. So early in life, uh, living under deprived conditions, uh, they they suffer from physical abuse and sexual abuse, and also from um, just the conditions that they live in, 
which then lead on to chronic disease at some later point. So, you know, heart disease happens in Aboriginal men, for example, 20 years earlier than it does in uh, European men because of these, we call them MAL, which and MAL is an acronym for meaninglessness, alienation and loss of culture and identity. And one of the things that we're trying to do at the moment in some of the Aboriginal communities that I'm working with is restoring this loss of culture. We call it, uh, a, um, well, it's a change back to their uh, original culture. It's cultural healing that's used, not medicines or tablets or no. even yeah. lifestyle so much. It's getting them to recognise and acknowledge and be proud about their culture and stand up for their culture which then gives them this pride that takes away the meaninglessness, alienation and loss of culture and identity. I'm really happy that you are kind of addressing those things, uh, Gary, because it's, it's something that uh, I, I, as a native uh, New Zealand Māori, uh, hold dear to my heart, and that is and something that I, I want to bring in, not for just men of Māori or Aboriginal culture, all men, in fact, is, is this self-awareness of, of yourself and how healthy that can be um, for your body and and your mind, you know. So, um, but and also, yeah, your, especially... also, also your awareness of culture, that, and that's, that's important right. with Mali. That's particularly important because of the system that you have set up over there. It's we're trying to rediscover it in Aboriginal culture here, and and we will because it's starting to happen. And Pascoe's yeah. book and a couple of other of the revisionist history books that have been written now are starting yeah. to realise that this is an important part of. Uh, long-term health of the culture and of the individual. 100%. And uh, I am have actively been engaged in learning more about the Aboriginal culture and uh, especially in, uh, of the area that I'm, I'm in now. I've been in touch with uh, Uncle Dennis Foley, who's a, a native of this area and um, is an elder. And uh, some of the stories and some of the awareness that uh, is there for Aboriginal uh, people, not only just of this area, is, is just amazing. It's amazing for me as Māori because, I mean, we, we won't go into it, but there is a, a Māori connection in New South Wales with the Aboriginal people. So, it, yeah, I'm, I'm really ha happy that uh, it's something that you're, you're, you're consciously engaged in. Well, you have to be. When you're working in this area, you've got to be involved in all of those things. Uh, and as I say, you know, you can... You get nutritionists specialised in diet and you get exercise physiologists specialised in exercise. But um, if you're an epidemiologist, you have to specialise in, in all of them. You have to know the, the, the underlying basis of, of all of them so that you can then work out. Because all of these things interact. You know, you, if you change somebody, if you've got somebody who's overweight or obese and you change their diet, that's not going to help because that's mm -hmm. not just changing one thing. Their diet is influenced by their sleep patterns and their physical activity and their relationships with their family and their relationships with their culture and all these things interact we call it a systems model it's not a linear model you know you don't just change the diet and then that decreases weight and then you go off and you're better and better all these things interact and you can't just change one thing you've got to change all of them mm. it's interesting you you say that uh, i mean i know and i would say in times gone past in in especially maori culture i know that the uh, tohungas or, or the, or the uh, doctors who were involved in uh, health and medicine, um, that was definitely the approach. It wasn't just going to eat these leaves mixed with this. Uh -huh. it, it, was the, it, was, it was everything else involved with it, you know, your yeah. involvement in the community, um, you know, the, the moon cycles, uh, you know, what foods are, are being planted and when, how it's, it's not just 
uh, hacking at the leaves, so to speak. There's there's many. Yeah, look, I've, many... I've been out in the bush with with uh, Aboriginal men in particular. I've worked more with men, but I'm now working with Aboriginal women as well uh, down the south coast of New South Wales. And I've been out in the desert, uh, out in Central Australia, with these guys. And you walk through, and me as a white man, I've got relatively good perception. I can appreciate art. I can appreciate fine detail of things. But I walk through the bush, and these guys see things that I don't see. They can see, uh, you know, a little bush orange or a little bush lemon or something there, a, 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 um, uh, a mulberry that's native, native Australian mulberries and gooseberries and things. And I don't see them and they stop and they can pick these up and they can look at them and they can tell, you know, what time of the, what season of the year this is that as a result of the, the way the plant looks. They can tell which animals eat it, where the seeds have been dropped. They have amazing, amazing perception, which we don't appreciate uh, as, yeah, as white. I, 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 I've said this many times before, had and I'm sure you agree, had uh, Australia adopted more of um, taking care of their Aboriginal people, uh, for one, and taken, and uh, actually learnt what they had to offer, Australia would be really untouchable in terms of its cultural awareness. And, and I think um, uh, the technological advancements here especially uh, would have been so much more far in advance than, than in, anywhere else in, in the world. I I. I believe um, simply well, this because still, this may still happen, of course, because we are yep. uh, driving ourselves to extinction anyway, and uh, the Aboriginals will survive when if that extinction does occur in what white and yep. other advanced Western societies. We call ourselves advanced. We call ourselves Western societies. Western's okay, but advanced. You have to question whether it's advanced from time to time. There, yeah, probably more, more so than not. Yeah. Um, so I, I know that you 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 say that you are, are are helping, you know, a lot of these communities, especially in the Aboriginal. Uh, I mean, I know that that's it's not just uh, Indigenous cultures that you're working with, um, but um, men on a whole. Where are you seeing? The b bigger uptakes in terms of what you're able to to offer. I, I mean, are they taking to the fact that you you know um, that there's a mindset that needs to be changed. So where where are men specifically? Um, where are they finding the the value in what, in what you're offering? That's that's a, an interesting question. I started the men's program, the Gutbuster program, back in 1992. I think it was 1991. 91, 91. I think. Yeah, 91. Yeah, and I I did it because men weren't being looked after. Every you know the what. Everything to do with weight control and obesity, which really only started in 1980. If you look at Australia and America and England and all that, the epidemic in obesity just started around about 1980. And there are good reasons for that. And I, you know, I need more time to explain that. But what happened is the men were looked after. So in 1991, I said, well, okay, let's do something for men. So we set up the Gutbusters program. They flocked to it uh, over about 10 years. Uh, and one of the reasons they did flock to it was because they could be themselves. They could talk in groups without having to brag or without having to, to uh, big note themselves in front of other men. And you'll find that men, when they're in a group of women, if you've got one man, they react totally differently <laughs> than men in a group of men. Personally, yeah. I, I hate being in groups of men because it's all bluster and it's not, uh, it's not genuine, it's not real. 
And if you can get them out of that and discuss their real issues, you'll find that they have real health problems. They don't want to be fat. They don't want to have a beer gut. They don't want to be unhealthy. They don't want to have kidney problems. They don't want to be on dialysis. They don't want uh, um, heart disease killing them, you know, 20 years earlier than, than it should. Uh, and so you can, you can do something with them then. And interestingly, when you get them to that level of motivation to, to have, wanted, have decided to want to do something, they are fantastic to work with. Hmm. They are better than any other group that I've ever worked with because they do what you tell them, what you advise them. If you advise them yeah. properly, and it's, it's strict scientific advice, you know, you don't yeah. give them uh, conspiracy theories or nut-based uh, programs or anything like that. If you give them good <laughs> advice that they can carry out themselves, they will do it. And you don't have to do much and you can just let them go. And I've, I've still got men, this is, uh, Gutbusters was bought out by Weight Watchers about 2002. And I still have men that I meet at airports that come up to me and say, you used to run the Gutbuster program. Look at me, look at me, I'm, I'm, you know, I haven't got a gut anymore. And these, these are not just white, uh, white men, these are Torres Strait yeah. Islanders and Aboriginal men and uh, wow. uh, Tongans and uh, others that I've worked with. Fantastic. They're the best group to work with. And a lot of health people don't really appreciate uh, that they are. And they, they don't, so they neglect them. They think they're too hard to work with. The waste loss program, I, I, I think it was, was kind of that's termed. Right, that's right, yeah. We, we, looked, we didn't look at weight. And there were simple things like that because when you take the weight of a man, it's, it's, uh, it's not um, uh, representative of body fat. Because when, when you stand on a scale, what you're measuring is muscle, bone, and all those yeah. things that make a man big. Uh, when yeah. I, I was invited at one stage by the doctor at South Sydney Rugby League Club to look at all their players, this was back in the 80s, to look at their players wow. because when they, when they measured them on a body mass index, which is weight over height squared, they were all uh, regarded as obese. And he said, the doctor said, I can't understand why they're obese. And, you know, these are the fittest men on the planet. Rugby league players, yep. you don't get any fitter, fitter men. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and so when, and when, you, when you measure their body fat in contrast to their weight, they have very little body fat, up to 3% body fat, which is almost, you know, no yeah. fat at all. They're so lean yep. and so muscular. So um, you've, got to, you've got to treat that differently to, to, uh, and you've got to look at it as a separate issue than you do with women when you're dealing with weight with women in, in particular and some of the health problems that come from that. Um, so it, as a part of uh, Karma Men and what I'm hoping to achieve is to um, be able to introduce uh, men such as myself to to ask for help and I'm, I'm encouraging it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm no... I'm not afraid to ask for help if I need it, if I know I need it. But so I, I know that some it's difficult for some men because they don't know how to go about asking for it. Um, yeah. And that's a kind of a, a part of the problem here. And so I hope that having this platform, you know, uh, men can just kind of share, like you're saying, when, when, once you get together with men uh, in the right, in the right setting. Well, you uh, see, I'm, 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 I'm not a clinician. A clinician deals with one-to-one. And, yeah. and even though I've given you some advice from time to time on, particularly on uh, cholesterol, which is a which which is a genetic problem uh, largely uh, in your case and in my case, and and what you can do to to deal with that. I, I don't work like a doctor in a one to one situation. Um, no. I, I work with populations, so I'm yeah. more interested in reducing the cholesterol 
of a whole group of people or a whole population yep. of people than I am on the one to one. The doctors have got to do that. We see yep. we have a, a little motto in lifestyle medicine: you you um, you educate, you motivate, and you instigate. Whereas in medicine, you medicate, you operate, and you palliate. They're two different things. The yeah. one lifestyle medicine you do when people are well, the, med, the doctor deals with people who are not well, who are ill. Yeah, two separate issues. And and the, yeah. the first one, the first one dealing with people when they're well, you're better off dealing with a hundred people and, and just changing every one of those slightly than dealing with one and making having a dramatic impact. Yeah, yeah, go going for the masses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I know that you're you're uh, short on time, uh, Gary, but um, and I and I do thank you. But I'd I'd like to just um, finish off on something that I, I kind of wanted to ask you the question that you know, look, if you could um, sit with your um, past selves, you know, from each decade, well, what would be some things that you would say to your twenty, your thirty, your forty year old? Because what I'm trying to do is is to kind of like uh, offer uh, help to say a, a twenty year old who has whatever issues that he's having uh to 30 year old because they're, they're quite different in, in terms uh, of whether it be financial self-awareness or, or health but um i mean if you could sit with your 20 30 40 50 year old self what what, what would you some of the things that you would say to, so, to your really because, because my life wasn't planned in the way it's turned out although uh i, I have no complaints about that at all um, in my 20s, I, didn't, I thought I was going to be a psychologist and I, I actually trained as a psychologist. Then, but I was always interested in health. That was a passion. And I, I guess what I would say to myself in my 20s is follow your passion. Um, I would also say uh, that you need to, um, if you can help other people in your passion, then you've got 90% of the, the game is solved. If you're just doing it for yourself, like if you're a stockbroker or, or a, uh, yeah. somebody who's out to make money but doesn't do anything for anybody, uh, you know, I think James Pack is a good example, having a, yeah. a casino that does nothing for anybody except himself, basically, yeah. and a few other people. Yeah. I find no meaning in that, no satisfaction in that. And life has to have meaning, as I pointed out yeah. with the Aboriginal people, you know, the meaninglessness, alienation and loss of culture and identity. I guess as I got older, I fell more into a pattern of doing things that I was able to do in, in the health area. And I, I was working in health promotion where I was delivering messages because, because of the psychology background. You know, I was able to phrase messages on the media in particular and do advertisements. We did a lot for on quit, quit smoking, for example, the sponge ad. It's probably uh, too long ago for many of your viewers to to yeah. recognise, but where you wring out a sponge and you get the tar that yeah. goes into your lungs. Um, yeah. That sort of stuff. And then from there I moved more into epidemiology, which I was trained in, in public health, to, to take a, a particular problem at a particular time and work out how you can deal with that problem and what you can do to try and improve that problem. And you've got to, when you do this, you, you not only look at the cause of the problem, but to be successful, you've got to look at the cause of the cause and the cause of the cause of the cause. So you go right back into the environment and society. Yeah. So that's why I pointed out right from the start, when you're looking at even an infectious disease like COVID, you have to take account of the environment in which COVID uh, arises and in which pandemics arise. 
And as a result of the environmental destruction that we're carrying out in the world at the moment, purely for money reasons mainly and for economic reasons, uh, then you have to say, well, when's this going to stop? Because if it doesn't stop, the pandemics are going to get shorter and so the distance between them is going to get smaller. The last major one we had was in 1918, of course, the world pandemic, but we've had little ones after that. And people don't realise that HIV and uh, Zika virus and these other problems are cropping up in increasingly shorter periods. And this one's a big one. And the one after this, after a couple of smaller ones, will probably be even bigger than this if we don't do something about uh, our environment and the cause of the cause of the cause. Mm. So um, you're, you're, you're moving forward as uh, being at the front of uh, trying to, to, to help people uh, understand the causes and, and how we're going yeah, to try to alleviate. And being at the front of things is not always comfortable. No. You've got a lot of flag. <laughs> because, well, yeah. You, because you've got vested interests against you. You know, for example, the economists uh, that I am railing, railing against quite often because I believe that, and I've got a degree in economics as well. So I, I believe that the system that we live under, which is the economic growth system, encourages people to just want to make money and not uh, have meaning in their lives necessarily. And in doing that, the economists say, well, the more people we have, the easier it is to, to grow the economy and therefore to make money. And of course, the more, we've got 8 billion people in the world now. We'll have 10 billion by 2050. And imagine those forests that we're clearing by then, yeah. you know, they'll all be yeah. gone if we're yeah. not careful. Yeah. Well, what's, what's the use, right? What's the use of it yeah, if so, those so, things aren't there? And, and most people won't think of this, but it comes back to the cause of the cause of the cause, which is population and economics. And until we get our politicians to appreciate this and to look at changing the system and our way of thinking, then we're still going to be faced with these diseases that nobody, including me, are going to have 100% success with. Right. Gary, I, I appreciate your time. And, and uh, there's a lot of gold nuggets that have come out in, in this conversation. And uh, I, I, I once again, thank you for, for joining us on, on uh, podcast today.